Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches in Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Um, there's a number of things about this that are really worthy of consideration. You know, it's, it's clearly uh, the closing of uh, 1 Corinthians, but um, in it, Paul is uh, demonstrating his authority in this church. Uh, he's, you know, been the one that started them and brought the faith to them and has, you know, reared them up as a use the term a spiritual father uh, you know Jesus said call a man on earth your your father but you know he brought this church into existence and they have listened to a group of naysayers and have now come to the place where they're rejecting um, Paul hey guys so um you know the the issue really becomes that uh, you know you have to respect Paul and his authority, and they haven't that. Uh, so he goes through this whole collective letter, and there are a number of things about uh, the correction that's in this letter that Paul actually addresses in, in this closing of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So um, first of which is uh, here he talks about this collection uh, for the saints and how he's given orders to the churches of Galatia that they would do the same also. There's a couple of things inside this, uh, you know, offering, tithes and offerings. Uh, there's, um, you know, a lot of talk in the church today, like, oh, you don't have to tithe. That's, uh, you know, an Old Testament law and, and uh, you know, not required in the church today. Well, look, uh, we are in the age of grace. We're not under the legalism uh, that was the Old Testament law. Uh, but both Paul and Jesus told us that we should be tithing. Okay, Jesus is having a conversation with the religious leaders, and they go through this great thing. So this is New Testament, Jesus speaking, and they go through this great thing of how you know they give a tenth of even all their spices. So when they purchase their you know salt or their mint, or whatever they're going to use, they, they divide it into 10 equal piles by weight, and then one-tenth of that goes to God. They give one-tenth of everything that they have, everything that grows, everything that they, they earn, they give one-tenth. Jesus says all of these things you should have done without neglecting the weightier things, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself, uh, doing justice is what he says. Paul talks about the necessity of giving. Everyone wants to point to where Paul talks about every man should give according to as he had purposed in his own heart. 
he's specifically referring to this offering right here. So it has that statement has nothing to do with tithing. Now, again, I just want to be clear. We don't have some form of legalism here. We're not trying to say you must tithe. There's no burden within it. You can do as the Lord leads you to do. But the scriptural context of uh, giving our tithes to the Lord is still in place. That we should be, you know, giving to the Lord. Secondly, offerings are given on top of the tithe, and that's what he's referring to here. Within that, he's giving orders to do it. That everyone, notice that, that he says, uh, you know, let each one of you lay something aside. So he's saying to this church at Corinth, above and beyond what you're giving in your tithes, uh, every one of you should also be laying something aside for the church at, at Jerusalem is what he's referring to. Uh, they're being so heavily persecuted that the church in Jerusalem is starving to death. Uh, their businesses are being shut down. Uh, they, they aren't, you know, as soon as Jews find out that they're Christians, they won't hire them on the jobs. Um, Joseph of Arimathea and also uh, Nicodemus who came and spoke to Jesus in John chapter 3 were two of the most wealthy men in uh, Jerusalem uh, when uh, one of their daughters was married uh, it was recorded by historians that uh, Jerusalem had never in its history seen a celebration so large uh, they, they, they put on a spread like uh, no one had ever experienced in Jerusalem uh, previous to that occasion within three years of uh, the persecution beginning, both of them were penniless, penniless, and uh, one of their daughters uh, was found to be begging for work in order to have enough daily bread uh, to keep herself alive. So the persecution of Christians in Jerusalem was profound, and Paul is giving this command to the church of Corinth that they take up a daily or a weekly collection. And within that, there's another point of discussion. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. When you go to church on Sunday, is what he's saying, to this church at Corinth. The church at this point, especially the Gentile church, has abandoned Saturday worship. You know, so that whole idea that somehow uh, it's more pure, more holy, more necessary to worship on Saturday is not biblical. Paul writes uh, to the church of Colossae, tells them in Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 16, let no one judge you in food or drink the observation of new moons, Sabbaths, or any such thing, for they're all a shadow of Christ, who is in fact the substance. The church worshiped on Sunday. The New Testament church shifted its worship from Saturday worship over to Sunday worship. So, you know, again, this is one of those confirmations where you don't have to be uh, concerned about the fact that you don't go to church on Saturday. If you have a particular, uh, you know, desire or circumstance that leads you to go to church on Saturday, great. I mean, 
good for you. Um, when I first came to the Lord, the first thing I had to realize was that I had a spiritual need to be in fellowship every week. That was like, you know, a revelation to me that I needed to do that with my wife and newborn daughter. And at the time, uh, my schedule was constantly shifting and rotating, so uh, I had to just look at every week and decide what day, you know, what service am I going to be able to hit. So it started out with just making the commitment that every week I'm going to be in church. And, you know, from there it grew to every Sunday morning I'm going to be in church. And once I took Sundays off, well, I could go Sunday morning and evening. And lo and behold, when I asked my employer, you know, months later, if it was okay if I took Wednesday night off, I was astonished when he said to me, you know, of course you can have Wednesday, Sunday and Wednesday off. I was really surprised in the beginning when he didn't ask for that. If I had only asked, I could have had it off the whole time. You know what I'm saying? You know, you have not because you ask not, Scripture tells us. So, you know, consider uh, what the Lord might be saying here. The church and its commitment. When you guys come together every week, uh, I, I want you to have something ready. And then he makes that statement. Uh, I, I like the way he puts the respect on it for them. You know, whoever you guys say should take this offering to the people in Jerusalem. That's fine with me. Paul is not, you know, saying now, once you've got that money together, you make sure you keep it in a box for me. He doesn't have his hand in the piggy bank, right? He's, he's above reproach in that way. But he does make the statement that essentially, if it works out that I am the one who takes it to Jerusalem, then whoever goes can go with me, you know, I'm not traveling with them. They're traveling with me. He's, he's establishing his authority again, reestablishing his authority over this church, which has, you know, proverbially begun to slap his hand away and act like, you know, you're not our dad. Who are you to tell us what to do? And, you know, here as he closes the first letter, he basically is saying, I am your dad. Now, watch up. So I'm just taking care of them. Uh, there are a couple of supportive texts that are interesting to me in regard to church authority. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 25, uh, Jesus called uh, them, the disciples, to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, their authority. Those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so with you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If you pull that verse out of context... You know, the anarchist wants it to be that, okay, so nobody's in charge, right? Think about how many times Jesus grabbed right a hold of the circumstances and told people how things were going to be, demanded of the men who were following what you know, him what they were going to do, told his followers, okay, you and you are going to go into that town and you're going to 
find the guy carrying a water picture on his head, you follow him. You know, you'll find a, a donkey, take the donkey, bring it back to me. You know, he, he was commanding and he was directing and he was orchestrating, leading all along the way. The, the, the issue is not lording it over them, not using it in an abusive way. You see uh, Peter, who was there in Matthew chapter 20, being told that by Jesus. You see Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, giving some instructions to church leadership uh, in regard to this very thing. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, right? He, he saw Jesus transfigured, so his his position is one of you know, really divine authority, what he understands of the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 5, verse 2, it says to those leaders, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, meaning, you know, don't do it like you hate the job, you know, it's got to be something you love, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, meaning you can't go into this job for the money, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Bear the authority, direct, do it from the position of leading by example, not as being some demonstrative you know, Christian overlord. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, looking at verse 5, Now I come to you, now I will come to you when I pass through uh, Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Now he, he tells us uh, in the next verse the reason is because he's headed to Ephesus, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, two aspects of this. One, He's saying to them, when I come to be amongst you, the financial support that you should be uh, caring for me and my ministries with, uh, I'm going to be expecting that so that you can, he phrases it, so that you can send me on my journey. So, I'm coming back to you as the leader of that church, the founder of that church, expecting that once I'm with you for a season, uh, you guys will send me on with the support that's necessary. He, he doesn't look at this as presuming upon them at all. He looks at this as a, a very natural, very necessary thing. And it was in place previously. They had the mindset that, we are Paul's, and Paul is ours, and we work together. And now these people have come in and undermined uh, their thinking about their relationship with Paul, and so they've pulled away emotionally and spiritually, 
And Paul's reasserting himself into that relationship. <clears throat> that uh, the you know a bigger part of the reasoning as to why he's not going to stop and not going to stay with them is what he says. I hope to stay with you, you know, for a while. I want to be able to come there and, and uh, you know minister amongst you and, and, and reestablish our relationship and and build ourselves back together. He's he's on a mission presently uh, to get to Ephesus, and he doesn't want. Uh, especially given that he's had to rebuke them so harshly now for 16 chapters. I mean, remember the last time you got a 16-chapter letter, you know, from somebody who was rebuking you for 16 chapters, right? He doesn't want it to be 16 chapters of rebuke, and then I show up and, hey, fellas, and how's it going, and give me the money, and I'll see you later, and I'll do it. He wants it to be that, uh, yeah, I'm passing through the region, but I'm going to hang out with you when I have time for us to rekindle relationships, to sit down and have conversations, to have meals together, for me to spend nights in people's homes, have Bible studies, and really you know, show the love and the gratitude and the leadership and the maturity that he has in his life that's so beneficial to them. And it's, his thought is about them. It isn't, it isn't the lording over, right? This guy as a shepherd of the flock understands how vulnerable these sheep are, right? This isn't, this isn't some militaristic, I'm going to get there, I'm going to reestablish myself. He's, he's, he's saying, man, these guys are like, off. they think I'm cruel. Like, you know, we can just sit down and play some board games again. You know what I'm saying? And, like, you know, just rekindle these friendships and, and get them back to the realization of, I'm their friend. I'm the guy that brought them the gospel, you know, taught them the word of God, uh, you know, established them in the faith. And, and you know, because I there's been distance between us, somebody's gotten in between and created this wedge, and they're pounding on that for all they're worth. To create a separation between Paul and his church. And he's saying, I just need to get reestablished. I do not want this to be the thing where I just go breezing through <laughs> and act like that's all that's needed for me to, you know, glue us back together. I need to, I need to spend the time. So when I'm going to come and be with you is when I'm able to come and stay with you uh, for a while. And, uh, you know, that last statement there, I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. You know, we talked about the fact that the book of James uh, admonishes us to not say, oh, I'm going into this country or that land and we're going to live there for a year. We're going to make all this money and do this or that. You know, James says, look, you're just better off saying, if the Lord wills, this is what our plans are. Because in the end, you know, we've all laid down really serious plans that have evaporated right in front of us. And, uh, you know, you look silly when you, you act like, oh, I know this is going to happen. You know, God has told me that it doesn't happen. You're not only defaming yourself, you're defaming God in the process. So much, much better to make the statement of recognition that you don't really know how it's all going to turn out. 
And then, you know, turning to what I've touched on a couple of times, but I will carry an emphasis until Pentecost for a great and effective door has opened to me. A great and effective door has opened to me. Open doors are a really great thing as a Christian. You know, we, we look at, uh, oh, well, I've got six options here in front of me. And uh, what am I supposed to do, Lord? And you begin praying and like, uh, you know, I call it bean counting where you, you know, you do your pros and cons of, uh, you know, well, if I take door number one, uh, there are these 20, you know, good things that are going to happen. Uh, there are these five bad things that could potentially happen. So the 20 outweighs the five. You know, and then you go through all your different options and you, you try to bean count like pros against cons. And it's so funny because more often than not, you don't even recognize the opportunity, the unseen opportunity, which is going to pop up uh, suddenly after that, the, the open door. I, I ask the Lord frequently in circumstances that he would open doors and close doors. If, if I'm not supposed to be stepping into a circumstance, then like make it a brick wall. I don't like no door handle. Don't want. <laughs> I don't say. I don't even. I don't even. I don't want it to be an option. I'd much rather. Uh, I'm, I'm not that insightful that I can sit around and act like I have heard from God. You know, it's, that it's rare that. You know, I've heard so clearly from the Lord that I could just move forward with you know that type of described confidence. Paul, Paul, right, author of more than one third of the New Testament, is is saying, I, I like open doors and closed doors. There's a, an open door of opportunity and great opposition also within these circumstances. So. Ephesus uh, turns out uh, to be that. Um, if you've got your Bible, uh, you might want to just peruse with me. Uh, Acts chapter uh, 20. Uh, you'll remember uh, in uh, or, or Acts chapter 19. If I said 20, I meant to be saying Acts chapter 19. In the beginning, he arrives there in Ephesus. And uh, there are a group of people who are believers, right? But they, they Paul recognizes something about they haven't, uh, I think it's that he, he, they don't have the Holy Spirit. He, he recognizes an immature in them. And so he, he asks, uh, you, you know, what were you guys baptizing to? And, and, and the answer comes, uh, we were baptized uh, into uh, John's baptism. He John the Baptist. So we're in Acts chapter 19, guys. Um, so we're baptized into John's baptism. We today would more think of that as the baptism of repentance, right? The, the one that says, I'm all done living this way, and I want to live as a Christian now. Uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit is a different thing. Paul says to them, when you're baptized, oh, John's baptism, well, let me baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, baptizes them when, and, and I want to be clear, not when they were baptized, you know, in Jesus' name, as some people imply. It, it was when he laid hands upon them and prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues and prophesy. Okay? So there in the beginning of uh, that, you see that he, he uh, 
ministers in that way. And then uh, we see uh, some pretty amazing miracles take place down in verse 11. Uh, in uh, Ephesus, as he's here, the handkerchief and apron uh, placed upon the bodies of the sick are making uh, people well. We're told uh, that uh, he continued there uh, for, uh, at first it says three uh, a month, and that he taught in the synagogues, so, so four weeks in a row, and then we hear that he was there in the, the school of Tyrannus for three years. Okay, so when Paul is saying back in 1 Corinthians 16, you know, I'm going to come back to you. He's, he's in Ephesus doing a tremendous work of God uh, for an extended period of time. Uh, so then later on, uh, down in verse uh, 21, as they uh, begin to minister, you see certain members of the faith there that were uh, uh, used in their households uh, that are listed um, in verses down to verse 27, 28. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, uh, because you've got uh, this, uh, this uh, Demetrius, who's a uh, silversmith up in verse 24, uh, who uh, they recognize the ministry of Paul is pulling people away from the idolatry. And they're being converted to Christianity, so their 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 idol manufacturing business is suffering, and people aren't buying the idols. And in particular, where the riot really begins is when there's a mass conversion, and the people bring in all of their books on sorcery and witchcraft, and their scrolls and their books, and they burn them together. And it's you know, in today's figures it would be tens of thousands of dollars in literature that they burn uh, freeing themselves from the idolatry so Demetrius the silversmith has been watching the sales of their idols drop and now suddenly there's a big surge of people in the community that abandon devil worship and burn all of their parchment scrolls and books and so they start a riot that ends up inside a big coliseum where uh, you'll, you'll remember later Paul talks about Alexander, the coppersmith, uh, did me great harm. And God will, uh, you know, uh, God will correct him, basically. And he also uh, records in speaking to Timothy in a letter that uh, Hymenus and Alexander should learn to not blaspheme God. Uh, and uh, so, you know, all of that's taken from this instance that they're dealing with. Alexander, the coppersmith, so this Demetrius, the silversmith, starts the riot and the chaos. And now that they've all gathered in the Colosseum, uh, they bring uh, uh, Alexander, the coppersmith, in. He's going to speak. And apparently whatever he says doesn't quell the problem. It drives everybody insane. And they just chant. Great is Diana of the Ephesians for hours. You know, he whips them into a frenzy. And, uh, you know, later it gets uh, calmed down. Uh, you know, they, they endure a lot of difficulty and a lot of harassment and a lot of hardship until they're driven uh, from the community. So, you know, what he's saying here in verse 8 of First Corinthians chapter 16, I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost for a great an effective door has opened to me. Uh, there are many 
adversaries. He's probably right in the transition into the school of Tyrannus, where uh, a lot of people are speaking their hatred and their opposition to him, but he is simultaneously having great opportunities uh, to speak and to minister, and people are being healed. So we should learn from that that uh, there are always uh, great difficulties along with great opportunities. You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't look at it like I'm going to step through this door and oh now the opposition is being oh, well clearly this is not God's will and a lot of people do that. If if it's not just smooth sailing, then then they pack their stuff and they go away. And, and I I'm always disheartened with people that function that way. That that as soon as uh, you know, you really have to consider what the scripture is telling us about demonic influence. You know, when Daniel is praying, and the Lord dispatches an angel to come to him, Gabriel. And uh, arrives 21 days later, Gabriel says, the minute you prayed, I was dispatched. But I have been waylaid for 21 days because essentially I was detained, I was doing battle, or I was in custody to the demonic prince of Persia. I, I've been trying to get to you for 21 days. It wasn't until Michael the archangel came and delivered me from the possession of uh, the Prince of Persia that I was able to get. There are demonic forces that apparently the way it's described throughout the scripture, they have authority, regional authority. If, you know, Satan has controlled a, a specific area in a specific way for a period of time and you're, you're going to just show up there and start preaching the gospel and dismantle it, you better expect there's going to be great opposition to what you're doing. You know, there's an interesting little pocket of America that's mostly unrecognized, and some interesting things have happened there in New York State, right? Two big names, there's been a handful of names, but two big names that have come out of there. One was Charles Taze Russell, founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And another one was Joseph Smith. You probably recognize that name from Mormonism. Right? Same regions around Palmyra, New York. And there are a handful of other spiritists that work there and false teachers that work there. And it, it's like this quiet little bastion of demonic influence. And the Christians that were there, you know, especially in the early 1800s, you know, ha had all kinds of problems and difficulties and opposition and you know, treachery that was going on. It, you know, you look at this region, right? I mean, you're going to head down onto Mount Desert Island and start ministering the gospel. Think about what, for us, especially the locals, spiritually, what Mount Desert Island is known as. You know, earth-worshipping, New Age, uh, Eastern mysticism, uh, yoga sort of weirdness. You know, Church of Wicca. Yeah, we're, we're going to, you know, God will give us a great and open door, but you got to expect there's going to be some opposition. You know, Jesus specifically gives us 
that message about demonic influences, and, and they've accused him of casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub. And he, he says, you're saying we're on the same team? I'm paraphrasing. I'm on the same team as the devil? He said, nobody wins in a demonic situation unless he overpowers the strong man and takes possession of that one's household. You know, you, you got to go in, take the armor away, and disarm the one that you're going to conquer. Jesus was defeating the devil. So anyway, I've ranted on that enough. Back in 1 Corinthians 16, looking at verse 10. And if Timothy comes, so there's some plan to get Timothy in uh, to Corinth and have him minister in the interim. So while Paul's working in Ephesus, uh, Timothy is going to get into Corinth. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. What do you mean without fear? He's going to a church. Why, why, why would Timothy have to be afraid? For he does the work of the Lord. So as far as his credentials go, as I also do, to, to the level that I do the work of the Lord, Timothy does also. Therefore, let no one despise him. You, you better not have a chip on your shoulder when this kid shows up to minister amongst you. But send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. The uh, definitive verse is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, where Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise your youth. It be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Okay? Timothy is an exemplary young minister. And so very often people look at age as some kind of spiritual criteria. Now, there's no question when you look at someone that's extremely young, they may have certain immaturities and lack of experience in life. But if you can see within them, you know, look through the lens of your own youth, right? Here they are, 18, 19, 20, 25, 27 years old, and they're living their life in purity for the service to the Lord. Okay, what were you doing at those ages? Right? We Probably all of us in this room laugh, like, good grief, like, can we stop talking about it right now? Can we just move on? So why the disrespect? You know, for someone that might be young who has gone to Bible college and is now working in ministry. Maybe they've got some things to teach us. Maybe there are some things to pay attention to in their life. You know, I, I, I listen to my daughters and uh, you know, hear the wisdom coming out of their mouth. And I, you know, as their father, know better than anybody their immaturities. I recognize their personalities. But boy, when I get that lens out and I think 19, 21, 23, 30 years old, what was I doing? These guys are so far ahead of me as far as what I was doing at that time. You know, I'll never forget a woman standing in this room whose marriage and life and family were absolute shambles. Just 
the pile of wreckage you can't even believe. And professing Christian, and my wife and I are trying to encourage her, you know, you, you need to spend time with Lori, and you need to, like, you know, learn from her and grow and let some of these things work in your life, and you'll see the Lord, you know, create and produce. And she finally, after listening to us for a long time, said, I will not ever learn anything from anyone younger than me. And you know what? She hasn't. She has not. And things have only gotten far worse. Far worse. I mean, right now, I guarantee you today, 18, 20 years later, she's wishing life was as good right now as it was when she said those things in this room to my wife. They've gotten that much worse. Yeah, my wife was quite a bit younger than her. But here's the thing. Our children are almost the same age because we started having kids so young. They didn't start having kids until they were older. And so my wife is almost at the same place with rearing her children. And my wife has walked with the Lord the whole time that she's been raising her children. See, I want you to notice something in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. That literally means as a young man, Timothy's going to have to have enough gumption to step up and say, hey, I recognize that you're being disrespectful of me. And that needs to stop right now. However, he's going to say that, polite, direct, indirect. But he's going to have to put the mark on, hey, cut it out. You know, because why? Because in the end, all that is just carnality, right? That's just the flesh that says, I don't listen to this person. Anointing is very different, right, than what we look at positionally. You think about the prophet Samuel comes to anoint David as king. Saul's flaked out. they got to get rid of that guy. Now they're going to anoint David and make him. And, you know, Jesse brings in each of his sons. And, oh, man, this guy, giant head and shoulders. This is definitely God says, no. Not that son. Bringing the next one. Oh, well, this guy could be a king easy. Look at him. And not, not that one. And through all of the sons, no, 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 no. And the Lord gives us that message by his Holy Spirit through the prophet Samuel as he says, I do not look on things as men do. I don't see the outward. I look at the heart. He says of David, who the, I mean, what kind, of, what kind of kid is David? What kind of father is Jesse that he doesn't even think about the fact that I've got another son out in the field, right? Hey, I've come here to anoint a king, one of your sons. Right? Uh, no, not that one, not that one. Go, go through all the sons, and Jesse's like, I'm out of sons. I don't know. It takes Samuel saying, are you sure these are all? Well, I mean, you know, wait a minute, I do have one more. David is so insignificant in his father's eyes that he has forgotten that he's got another kid out in the field. Wow. <coughs> wow. Now, now think about everything that you know about David. Okay, now think about everything you know about Solomon, who came from David. Where, where would we be scripturally if we didn't have the examples, the teachings, and the writings of 
both David and Solomon. And, and, and here's his own father, like, yeah, I'm out of sons. Oh, no, I do have one more. You're right. God looks on things entirely different than we do. You got, you got to check your own heart. You got to check your own heart and make sure you're not looking through that corrupt lens. That corrupt lens of the flesh. So, you know, Paul says to the church of Corinth, who's already got a corrupted mindset about Paul, right? What are they going to think of Paul's disciple when he shows up? If they already have a chip on their shoulder about Paul, then what are they going to think about the guy that Paul raised in the ministry? So he better be able to come there without fear, and no one better despise him, as it says in verse 11. Verse 12, now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Uh, remember back in the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, when Paul had to say, uh, when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? I, 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 hope, I hope you have a biblical sense of what Paul means when he says carnal, right? Because there's a church sense that has been developed over time where we talk about carnal Christians, okay? Let's be clear. The scripture doesn't ever talk about carnal Christians. It says you're either carnal or you are a Christian. You're either walking according to the flesh or you're walking according to the spirit. So when Paul says, when you're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, are you not carnal? Is what he's saying. That was a big slap right across the face to the church at Corinth. Now he's closing the letter and said, oh, you know, all you guys that are big Apollos fans that uh, wanted him to be your pastor, I, I pushed him to try and get him to come to you guys, and he said, no way. <laughs> I'll go there if it's convenient, is what he said. I'll go there when it's convenient. You can, you can hear the wah, wah, wah. You know what I mean? The, all of the guys that were all hung up on Apollos were like, Oh, wow. You know, I, I thought for sure he was so awesome that he would come here and be our pastor and, you know, say things with us against Paul. And instead, when Apollos hears what's going on there, how they're all divided over, I'm a Paul, I'm a Peter. Apollos says, yeah, not interested in going there. That's, that's your mess, Paul. <laughs> you figure it out. You correct them. You write them letters. I'm not really, you know, interested in getting involved in that mess. Not involved with the carnality. 16.13. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. I like the fact that it says that, but it's not strong enough. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Several translations say it differently in ways that I do like. The English Standard Version says it in a way I really like where it says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Act like men, not sounds. That's literally what he's saying. Stop being a bunch of girls. Act like men, would you? 
you know, open your churches, would you? So, you know, just stop closing the door, stop wringing your hands, stop worrying about what everybody's saying. Will you stand up and lead your community, please? Will you stand up and be an example for people to follow? Will you do that with your life? Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And yet, right, verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. All that you do be done. Be men, be strong men who are loving. That, that is a very biblical sense of things. You know, people use that phrase, oh, he's a big teddy bear. That's the way my daughters and my grandchildren were, were thinking about the bear that was in our backyard. You know, they want to go outside with him. We're not going to go pet the 300-pound bear that's currently got my old birch tree bent right over to the ground, and he's just licking all of the black oil seed out of my wife's bird feeder and just tearing the top of it apart. You know, yeah, yeah, he's probably soft and cuddly, and he will kill you. Be strong, act like men, yet be very loving simultaneously. This is what the church needs, strong men that will behave this way. I mentioned it this morning. We've only got a few minutes left, but I want to read Joshua chapter 1, beginning at verse 7, as the commandment comes to Joshua, who's taking over for Moses. Moses is about to pass away, and Joshua is going to lead an entire nation of people. And the Lord says, only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you, the word of God said, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, meaning everyone that talks to you should walk away going, oh, that guy talks about the Bible. This book should not depart from your mouth. The word of God should constantly be coming out of your mouth. You know, it shouldn't be that the word of God is only found in your mouth on Sundays. It should be the word of God never leaves your mouth. It's always what's coming out of your mouth. Everyone is experiencing that. But you shall meditate in it day and night. Chew the cud, that's the word. Ruminate, meditate, you know. Digest it, take it all the way in, bring it back up. Chew it all over again. Swallow it all one more time. That means you're going to have to open the book several times. Read it in the morning. And then later in the afternoon, read the same passage again, and then that evening, read it again. And maybe you want to start tomorrow morning on the same passage as you read it again. You're digesting it, taking it in, so that the one or two words that you didn't notice before stands out to you. And you break it all down, and it becomes part of your person, right? That's what happens with the cow that chews the cud. It, it becomes part of their meat, and it becomes part of their milk. John Corson was the first one that I heard say years ago, you as pastors, when you preach, there should always be present in your sermon the milk, the meat, and the manna. That's very true. Something we easily digested, something you got to chew on, and something that could only have come from the presence of God. The milk, the meat, and the manna. That comes from meditating upon it. We need to be strong and courageous 
and meditate in it day and night, and that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Oh, well, I'd like to be, but I'm not. I'm not very strong. I'm not very courageous. So what? You were just commanded to be strong and courageous. So go do it. Right? I mean, you can have the mindset, well, certain people are strong and courageous. No. No, there's a commandment from the Lord to be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you to be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid, imperative command. Do not be dismayed, imperative command. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And there's the reason why. That's why you don't have to live a life of fear. 16.15, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, uh, meaning first in order and also first in importance. Right. So the household of Stephanus, that was the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Listen, uh, you don't get it, maybe, sitting here right now, but this is one more time, Paul just taking a swat at this church. Right? We'll get to it, but that's because this is the household that wrote the letter that was telling on the church for all of their failures, and they sent Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Acacia to Paul with the letter. Right? So Paul is saying, hey, when these guys get back, you better treat them with the respect that is due. There's a jailhouse mentality all throughout our culture, and in particular in the church, that acts like you should never rat somebody out. There are no rats in the body of Christ, right? We're one body. If somebody is over there living in <coughs> sin, we don't want to embarrass them and shame them, but definitely that message needs to get to the brain. The sickness that's in our midst needs to be known so that the body can deal with it. You don't leave things quietly, secretly growing in the church. Oh, I didn't want to tell. I didn't want to be a rat. The nervous system of the body conducts the signal through the whole body, right? I mean, how horrible is it if you're swinging away with your framing hammer and you just lay that waffle head right into your thumb and flatten your whole thumb right out and, huh, didn't feel a thing. You didn't get any signal from the crushing of your own hand. Now I've got bigger concerns, right? <laughs> if the signal did not come from the injury I just received to the rest of my body, there's a very serious problem in my body. Either that injury is so severe that I need to be that concerned about that, or there's something wrong with my nervous system that the signal did not get conducted back through so that it can be dealt with, right? If you're framing away and you flatten your thumb like that, and it's not until you go to get in the toolbox and you can't pick something up and you look at your thumb and it's all smashed, like, what did that happen? There's something wrong. The body needs to communicate. We need to be aware. You know, we don't put it in the church bulletin, 
you know, brother so-and-so was blasted out of his mind on alcohol last night. Everybody be aware, you know. But somebody ought to be aware so they can go help him be freed from that so that he doesn't drown in that, kill his family, and wreck his life all over again. Need, needs to be, the information needs to be conducted through the body so that help can come. This group right here, you know, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first roots, the most important group, first in order, the first to receive Christ from my teaching and my mouth, but also the most important of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. You who are upset with the fact right now that they wrote a letter and sent it to me, you better respect them for who they are and, and what they've done in your midst. And in fact, what you really should be doing is desiring to be like them. You should be like those guys, is what Paul is saying. Okay, it was the Roman providence that extended over central and southern Greece, and Corinth was its capital. Wondering about that. 17, I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Guess what? What they supplied to Paul was very little financially. What they did supply to Paul, which refreshed his soul, was honesty. They brought the information about how sick the church at Corinth was and laid out the honesty of what needed to be corrected to Paul. Paul said, those guys refreshed my soul. By coming here, and the world would say, ratting you out. Right? That's a healthy church that will behave that way. These are healthy individuals from the midst of an unhealthy church. They were lacking uh, for what was lacking on your part. They supplied for the refresh my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. A uh, couple of supportive verses. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verse 11. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions amongst you. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus are of Chloe's household. That, that we, we know that from history. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. So this, this same letter, Paul said, Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptize any others. This is the same Stephanus being spoken of here. The people that are saying enough is enough. We gotta go speak to Paul and we gotta get this church in order because it's chaos and there's all kinds of problems. 1619, the churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla, of course. The husband and wife team that ministered with Paul, uh, the tent makers that uh, gave and helped him in work. Also, Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife team, who instructed Apollos about the faith so that he became an effective Christian minister. Because Apollos, the one who, some are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, 
I'm with Peter. Apollos was only preaching the baptism of John. And Priscilla and Aquila show up and say, hey, you know, there's more to that message. <laughs> that message of John was a great one, but do you know who Jesus is? And about his death, burial, resurrection, ministry, and ascension back into heaven. Do you know any of that? And he's like, no. And they teach him, and he becomes a very powerful uh, minister in their midst. Priscilla and Aquila greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss because it's still common in this Mediterranean region, especially to greet by gripping the forearms and shoulders and kissing the left and the right cheek. Uh, you know, here at this church, we would probably say, you know, greet one another with the holy handshake. You know, those of us that have descended from the school of Ken Graves, you know, the, the crushing handshake, the holy handshake uh, that we all have. The salutation with my own hand and then Paul's, that seems sort of out of place. It's his signature. So you're literally reading it as it was written in the text. We see when he church wrote to the church at Galatia, chapter 6, verse 11, that he actually wrote, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. And the thought there is actually that the church became accustomed to the fact that when Paul signed his letters, it was very large because his eyesight was so bad that he would have to scroll the thing huge in order to even see his own handwriting. So another possible historical point. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come. If you are... In your midst, have someone who, you know, is denouncing Christ, which he had to address the, the fact that there were those amongst them that say, you know, say things like, thus says the Lord, Jesus is not God. And Paul said, look, nobody filled with the Holy Spirit is going to denounce Jesus Christ. So this is along those same lines that, you know, there's someone that does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And then he finishes that by saying, Oh Lord, come. The term there is Maranatha. Come quickly. Don't wait. That's kind of a scary thought. You don't love the Lord, and Paul's saying, Oh, the Lord comes quickly. I mean, the guy that doesn't love the Lord would probably prefer that the Lord come later. You know, not immediately. Paul, Paul is putting the urgency on repentance. Look, you don't love the Lord? That's your problem. I'm praying that the Lord will come quickly. That he's not going to delay. You know, any of us that have lived in the church and simultaneously lived in the world have probably at some point had that hope of, I hope the Lord doesn't come back right now. A terrifying way to exist. You read the book of Revelation, you read all of those horrors of what's going on in the judgment of the world, you get to the end of the book, and John says, he who testifies to these things says, Jesus speaking, red letters, surely I am coming quickly. John answers, amen, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Same idea. No matter what difficulties are in the path, want you to come and to fulfill all of these things. He closes by saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all. 
in Christ Jesus. Amen. My love be with you all. For those that have been rebuked in the church of Corinth, that he's blasted, that he's slapped around with this letter, they might be thinking, Paul doesn't love me. Right? And he closes by saying, my love be with you all. Lewis Neely, pastor of Warehouse Ministries in California. Booming voice, big guy, great, great spirit-filled minister. He was the first one that I heard say, the word all in the Greek is all dominicus. And it means all. <laughs> Paul loves everyone at the church. Even those that are knuckleheads, even those that are difficult, even those that have created trouble, he loves them all. People, people very often have that mentality that if you say anything that is contradictory to them, then you don't like them, you don't love them. I want to point something out. What they're saying about themselves is if they say anything, contradictory about you, you, they hate you. If that's your definition, then that must be what you're living by. Right? And it doesn't take anything. Just push the button. Just keep going. Just run your mouth. And quickly, they're going to renounce your faith. They're going to speak against Jesus Christ. They're going to demonstrate that they hate what you're about. And then you can turn the table around on them and say, hey, you're saying I'm the one that's filled with hate, but by your definition, you're confessing your hatred of me, right? You're very intolerant of my intolerance. It's an absolute, it's a really good tactic in our culture to use that on people, to get them to calm down and start talking in a give-and-take fashion about the very thing that will deliver them from their problems, right? That, that term, cancel culture, we're hearing so much right now, that, that comes from the whole online generation, right? They can cancel you, right? You're on Facebook doing, saying, whatever, they can just unfriend you, delete you, cancel you. And that's what they're, that's what they're trying to do in all settings. Don't speak, don't share it, I don't want to hear it, you can't, I'm not going to give you the freedom. We need to get inside those ears. We need to get inside those minds. That means you're going to have to get to that point where you say, look, the very thing you're accusing me of, you're completely guilty of yourself. Is, is there any way we're going to be able to sit down and have a conversation about this? There's, there's a dangerous thing, you guys, for us, the few of us in this room, where we don't even have to address anybody else. There's a very dangerous thing in that like, we read through that the church heaped up for themselves teachers, right, that would scratch their ears, right? Any of us that have had dogs actually know what that's describing. You know, they come over and you start petting and get to their ear and they lean right in, like, oh, I love that. You know, they'll sort of growl and grunt and they just enjoy what you do. We do that. We. We, we want to go to the church where the message is what we like to hear, we like right in and just exactly what I like being said and so I'll say you the things you like you say the things I like we got to get out in the crowd that doesn't like what what we're saying right 
Because what good are we going to do for one another, right? You agree with me, I agree with you. We shake hands, drink coffee, head home, and miss the whole world out there that needs this message. Paul says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Is that not our message for the world? Christ's love? See how the Lord might give you opportunity to share it with them. So, First Corinthians. We'll start on 2 Corinthians next week. How about that? We'll stand and pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the ability to be together, and we ask that you would minister to us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to care for one another, be careful with one another, to love, be gracious with one another, and that we would see your kingdom come in your will. We agree with Paul. We agree with John. And we say, come quickly. Even for all what's going on in the world around us, Lord, we long for your coming and we're looking for your coming. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.